Welcome to the Bike Rumor Podcast, very spin-off from our usual tech coverage to pick the brains of the people behind the brands. If you want to hear how bikes and components go from ideas to the things we ride, this is the cycling podcast you've been waiting for. Please welcome your hosts, Tyler and Watts. What's up, everybody? I'm here running solo this week out west. Watts is back home at the shop in North Carolina. And I just finished up with the press camp for Pivot for an all-new bike they're launching that'll come out in just a couple of days after this episode first airs. And Chris Kokalis, Pivot's founder, was there. We sat down and talked about his very interesting opinions on mountain bike design. And this is a little bit longer episode, so I'm gonna keep this super short, but if you're curious as to why he thinks press pit bottom brackets are actually the best possible solution, and why they are strikingly, uh, should be more similar to headsets, then give this a listen. We also talk a lot about some of the standards that he's helped introduce, which love them or hate them, are things like Super Boost and BB386 Evo. He will defend them and you may come away with a whole new appreciation for that, plus the really technical accuracy with which Pivot produces their bikes. There's a whole lot more in here. We talk about geometry and why people might want to start riding smaller sized bikes. Tons of good stuff. So without further ado, please welcome Chris Kokalis. Chris, thanks for coming on the Bike Rumor Show. Thanks for having me. Anytime, man. You're a hard man to track down. I've been trying to interview you for a long time, and it's always, you just travel a ton, you're always slammed. I think you're getting pulled in a million directions. Yep. So, for people who aren't super familiar, you started Titus. Yes. And ran that for how many years? Yeah, I started Titus in college, uh, 1989, 1990, 17 years, and then uh, had some partnership I actually merged with another company and that didn't work out and I wound up selling my interest in Titus and starting Pivot. So. Right on. And then you were doing some consulting for another brand. I don't know if you held that in it so I don't want to say the brand, but you were doing some work with others, I think concurrently with Pivot in the early days, but now it's hundred percent Pivot, right? Um yeah we well we when launched Pivot, we also launched BH USA and uh, so we handled a lot of the all the high-end product development on their road bike line as well and uh, and then distributed and marketed them in the US and so and we were in charge of their global spec as well so we did a lot with BH for right. five years so was it you that was responsible for the um, BB 386 yep came up with that, that idea um, stuff uh, the Cervelo BB right thing was coming out and there was people going in all kinds of wild different directions of every iteration between press fit 86 and bb right and new versions of uh bb 30 and i just kind of felt that we're, everyone's kind of taking these little half steps and we we really should go as big and wide as we possibly can and just use up all the all, use all the area get the bearings as far out to the outside of the bike and give builders the the most area to work with um frame builders and then also support the crank um in the best way possible and whether it's a 30 millimeter spindle or 24 millimeter spindle make sure that the uh the bearings could be large enough and we could have enough space for everything yeah and when you say enough area for the builders i think so what that did is it gave you this really wide bottom bracket shell that let you push the front end of the chain stays out wider so you could kind of get better 
stiffness and triangulation. I let the bo- the seat tube and the down tube come into it really, really wide. So. Yeah, so a traditional threaded bottom bracket was 68 millimeters. Um, and then if you thread in a set of like external Shimano cups, um, that's what gets you to the 86. So Shimano, um, when we developed the Press Fit 92 with um, with Shimano, the, the, the BB, uh, just the 86, which was smaller diameter, 86 millimeter wide specific, really at the time for, uh, 24 millimeter Shimano spindles. Um, and that put the bearings out as wide as you could, could go, um, without having problems with the Q factor of the cranks and chain rings not being in the proper spot and all of that stuff. So, um, when we did that, that worked great for the 24 millimeter spindle, but there's all this BB30 stuff out there. Um, and there was more and more 30 millimeter spindle stuff coming from pretty much every company, but Shimano. So, um, capturing, giving the, with a road bike, we didn't have a a small chain ring to deal with in the front or even a chain ring in the, usually in the, uh, 30 tooth size. So there's a lot more area around the bottom bracket um, to work with for that chain ring to come over. So to be at the 86 and go bigger, um, that was generally the idea of kind of combining ideas in the marketplace. So it's the same size as a press fit 30 and it's at 86 millimeters wide. It's not real genius stuff. It's just taking what works and putting the all the pieces together and, and not patchworking it like people were doing at the time. Yeah, I bet you were, my hunch is you were probably hoping that would sort of get rid of a lot of the other standards, but they haven't seemed to have gone away. Yeah, and, and, and more have come. <laughs> um, but it we did that um, in partnership with um, FSA, and uh, also we tried to, at, at the beginning of that, we tried to get Cannondale on board because we figured if... Um, Cannondale invented BB30, and so if Cannondale was willing to go that way, then um, then it would that would really take over. They they were just uh, at the time pretty pissed off by the whole idea because <laughs> well, it competes with their BB30. Yeah, don't don't mess with our standard type thing. And uh, um, and but Willier was in. Um, they're they're a big user of uh, FSA product. FSA was obviously full full in on it, and um, and yeah, and then it would be compatible with Shimano, and SRAM, GXP, and everything, everything, uh, everything but BB30 because right. <laughs> those spindles were actually quite a bit narrower. I don't, um, can't imagine why Cannondale didn't. Want yeah, it. <laughs> yeah, BB30 was a tough one, very constraining on the the frame builder. Yeah, and even like specifically actual bb30 frames where you're kind of like c clipping the bearings into the frame yeah. it's not a not a idea. super sano idea it, they yeah. creaked they had very also difficult to hold tolerances on that as well so yeah. so speaking while we're on bottom brackets you we're not going to mention the exact bike because this podcast episode will come out before the bike goes off embargo but we're at a, a pivot bike launch and you were kind of explaining why this particular wine went with a press fit bottom bracket versus a threaded because everyone gets excited now when there's a threaded bottom bracket. And I really liked what you had to say and how you compared that to a headset. So I was hoping you could retell that story. Yeah. So it's, it's not just a new bike that's coming up, but obviously every carbon, every bike since day one that pivot has ever produced other than 
Uh, I think we did something different in our original Firebird, and that was because of Hammerschmidt at the time. <laughs> oh, man. Um, and then also our, our dirt jump bike is a steel threaded bottom bracket. But beyond that, uh, aside from that, we're, we, on all the mountain bike stuff, we run uh, Press Fit 92. Um, and it, uh, on the, uh, on the aluminum bikes, it, at the time when we launched Pivot, it, it gave us way more real estate. Uh, same thing with constraining the frame builder. The narrower the bottom bracket, you can't have a wider down tube. It's more difficult to have offset pivots. And there was a lot of unique, really groundbreaking things that we did when we launched the first pivots in 2007 that hadn't been done before. We needed all that space. Now, it still has that same benefit versus going to a threaded bottom bracket, but we're, we're trying to make a better carbon frame. And anytime we have to deal with bonding something into a carbon frame, that's a big point of failure. And so over the years, we've worked hard to, um, all the aluminum inserts, the, the bearing pockets that are in the frame, we, we used to leave a, basically a hole in the frame and afterwards bond in a bearing cup. Um, works fine, but uh, that's where you can get some small paint cracks around the bearing cups. And then we moved to co-molding. So basically an entire aluminum slug molded with the carbon uh basically the part that goes in looks like a porcupine it's it's not round it, carbon basically infuses the entire piece and then the entire frame goes on a cnc machine and all these pockets get cut out that is a big step better um the new bike that's coming out and uh, and the downhill bikes that the team the our world cup downhill team has been testing for two years now all the bearing pockets on their frames are full carbon so there's no aluminum in them and um bernard kerr did uh two seasons ago the entire world cup season and one red bull hardline on the same frame with essentially no aluminum other than threads you know basically like small helicoils where something bolted into the frame everything else was a full composite frame and so for the newest bike, this is the first production bike where we've brought that on because it's been tested of two seasons of World Cup downhill. It's the same idea though. A bottom bracket shell bonding a threaded bottom bracket shell into a big carbon part. We're essentially having to mold something bigger than a Press Fit 92 and then put a monster aluminum sleeve inside there. And all this hard work to build a better, stronger, lighter carbon frame. And now you're you're putting something in a shell that has threads so that you can screw in a cup from each side that has a bearing pressed into it. Um, it's it's a little bit ridiculous and over-redundant. You would never build a car or a motorcycle that way. Um, and your car would weigh twice as much if every bearing in, in your car. I mean, hell, the, the pistons and the rods, you know, run on plain bearings just right on top of each other. You don't there are certain things that that if the tolerances are held um you don't have to stack stuff up like that and you shouldn't have to deal with the reason we're we're threading things is because tolerances are so bad and so that's where press fit 92 has kind of gotten a little bit of a bad name because most frame manufacturers are not holding the bottom bracket tolerances that they hold on the head tube many many years ago everybody 
basically came to a full agreement of what the tolerances are for a headset and whether it be FSA or Cane Creek or Chris King, any of the big headset manufacturers, they all have the ex exact same frame tolerances for this. Um, now, we're, we're, so when we're talking about the headsets, there, you know, there's a couple different kinds now. There's ones where you just drop the bearing into the frame, and then there's the press-in with the bearing still sitting in an external cup, kind of like the external bottom bearing. So are you talking about both of those? or? Yeah, I'm talking about any headset standard, really, but um, it, even... If you talk about a one-inch steerer with an external cup headset, that press has to be a proper press. If we're, we're talking about a zero-stack um, headset, um, I forget what uh, Chris King in, or inset, I think they call it. Um, that's uh, and basically what we use on bikes like the Switchblade, well, uh, bikes across our line. Those tolerances are very tight. And there, there won't be a frame manufacturer that will argue back on what these head, headset head tube tolerances need to be because everybody goes by them. There's, you know, every headset company has the standards. So why is it so much harder to get bottom bracket standards just as tight? It, it isn't any harder, <laughs> um, but it's an area on the head tube where they have to pay particular attention to. Um, Little bit of the interesting thing with the, the any of the bottom bracket standards is when when we developed PressFit 92 with Shimano, Shimano was willing to give specs on their cups, but they were unwilling to give the to frame manufacturing tolerances. They said that's not their job. Hmm. And uh, and then we worked with SRAM to get the GXP version of the bottom bracket going the next year. Worked with Race Face, FSA, pretty much got everybody on on board between 2007 and 2008, and um, it uh, and everybody's cups, the depth of the cups varied a little bit, and um, and the diameter of the cups varied a little bit, and it's it just both from the the bottom bracket manufacturer side, and then from the frame tolerance side. So we developed standards for press fit on what the tolerances need to be very similar to a headset tolerances and the, the proper diameters the most of the companies that are making um, plastic or in something a non-metal cup um, their what they say their diameter is is actually slightly smaller they shrink in molding and um, and so we, we took that all into account and basically had a range of tolerances that would cover every current bottom bracket in the market. And we supplied those to any frame manufacturer that would want it. But it's not the same as Shimano or SRAM saying, this is what the shell needs to be. Hmm. And, uh, and so factories, any factories want to do what's easiest for them. And so... They always throw out, these are our stock factory tolerances, and they're shit. I mean, <laughs> um, they're, they're going to push everything, you know, to take a mile if they, if they have the opportunity to do so. So uh, we, um, we just hold them to that tighter standard, and there's other high-end brands that are in the same factory as us and uh, that's, that are doing press-fit bottom brackets, and they're just going with the standard factory tolerances, and th those brands have... A reputation for creaky bottom brackets or bottom brackets that are too tight that wear out the bearings early. So it's not a case that PressFit 92 bottom brackets are bad or any PressFit type system. It's a case of you just have, just like you do on the head tube, you have to hold the tolerances just as tight. And over the years, 
we've on any pivot frame we've learned things and obviously we've made improvements and if we've found something in a bike from 2007 that didn't work in 2007 2008 2009 we've changed it the a pivot bike today is nothing even close to what it was the way our pivot bearings work the way our linkages everything's improved and increased in durability press fit bottom brackets is not an area where we've ever had a problem with bearings wearing out and creaking and issues where the bottom bracket doesn't last as least as long if not longer than the threaded and cup version of the bottom bracket so you guys do a few things to accomplish that though and then i want to go back to like what some other brands are doing but you guys machine the tools to mold that part in-house and send it to your factory you send the measurement equipment to the yep. factory and then you kind of have used one bottom bracket on all of yours that you guys repack with your own marine Grade yeah, grease. so when if it, when it comes to anything, we use a lot of race face um, thir bottom uh, cranks with 30 millimeter spindles, race face next, next R, and um, that's um, that's a 30 millimeter spindle. The bearings in a press fit 92 bottom bracket get a lot thinner, um, and most of the companies that have made bottom brackets for a 30 millimeter spindle have basically almost just machined the outside of a bearing with a little lip on it and that only the insertion is only just a few millimeters really sometimes we've seen one and a half to two millimeters when you take into account the chamfer on the bottom bracket so there's literally no almost no cup insertion supporting it so yeah we worked with enduro and we have a double row bearing uh it's got mobile one uh synthetic waterproof grease in it and uh and yeah, so we use our own bottom bracket on any uh, on any thirty millimeter spindle. And so, if somebody wanted to buy that as well, I believe we offer it on our website, and that would work with any thirteen crank, most Praxis cranks, um, anybody that's running thirty millimeter. All right. So you guys, it sounds like, kind of took all the variables out of the equation, yep. so that you could deliver something that was, you know, for lack of a better word, perfect or as perfect as it's probably going to be. Um, why? It seems like for any other brand trying to do it, unless they do those same things, you're having to deal with, you know, each different brand of bottom bracket being a little bit, their tonnage is a little bit different, and then each factory being a little bit different. Like, why is it so bad? Yeah. I, <laughs> People just lazy? A, I mean, for those who have been around for a long time, bike mechanics, um, it wasn't that long ago. It was early 2000s when threaded bottom brackets were still shit you know the machinery for a aluminum or steel frame basically it would just these two cutters would come in and bang out the threads and then facing tool would come in and the bottom brackets basically floating so you have a 73 millimeter shell it measures 73 but you don't know if it's 73 on center you know mm. you could have the drive line off one way or another you know, there, there was a lot of people wrapping uh, Teflon tape around the threads, having every shop having to face every bottom bracket. That stuff hasn't entirely gone away. Um, uh, you don't want to face your carbon right. bottom bracket <laughs> shell, but I can guarantee you they're not perfect, and some of them creak. And when we went from, I mean, we started working on the full carbon bottom bracket shell uh, from our first uh, Mach 5.7, but also on the early BH bikes. The first year of bikes that we did, everything was still BB30. And 
we we fought that. And then even when we went to PressFit 30, we still used a bond and sleeve. And the highest area of warranties was just the, they weren't actually failing, but the paint crack that would happen between mm. the aluminum bond and sleeve. Because it's a huge area and where there's a, an enormous amount of stress on the bike. And you've got two dissimilar metals and they're going to flex differently. And so there's a paint line there. And we would, it's, it's not cracked you know the the part is not coming physically undone from the frame but if a rider sees that they've got a a nice crack line around their paint to them that's a failed frame well and sometimes you know like i used to see some of that and i would have to call whatever brand it was was a couple different brands i noticed something like that because i was worried it was a crack in the carbon you know because sometimes you can't tell it looks deeper than it really is yeah and some some companies are fighting that now by allowing the aluminum to end and then having masking line around that, and then not starting the paint till just after it. But the you you're basically putting some band aids on some things because because a handful of magazine editors have decided that they like threaded bottom brackets, and every time they write a review, like oh it has a threaded bottom bracket, oh it doesn't have a threaded bottom bracket. The reality of it is, I've said this many times, you know. If you get a pivot bike from us and your bottom bracket creaks and you have and you have problems there, then write about it. But whether the bottom bracket is press fit or threaded shouldn't be a a worthy point. You know, people don't write about whether the motorcycle engine has a Nicacel cylinder. It's a point in specs, but they they don't press doesn't write about. Sorry. Little engineering <laughs> details um, that that so much more goes behind it. Of does the bike work or doesn't the bike work? Yeah. Um, well, I think this sheds a lot of light on the reasons why bottom brackets creak. You know, it's you know maybe it's the frame or the bottom bracket. It sounds like it's probably a combination. Yeah, a lot of things can happen in that area. But if it's all handled right, just like we just, it's been a long time since we anybody's dealt with bad headsets that's just not but it used to be bad headsets and bad fit and headsets was a thing and every shop had to face if they're if they were a high-end shop and they got a steel frame in from a wide variety of manufacturers good shops faced every head tube Mm. they chased every head tube made sure that that was dialed in because otherwise the cups wouldn't be aligned and things wouldn't work out right Okay, so one more question about the uh, similarities or, or dissimilarities in uh, bottom brackets and headsets. So with with the drop-in headset bearings, you know, the, the bottom of the, the bottom shape of the bearing yeah. is kind of angled. Why are we not doing angled interfaces for bottom brackets? Um, you're, you're dealing with a little bit different load. Uh, you got a vertical load on a headset and... Um, and generally the you know the head tubes are longer and those bearings are spaced further apart but uh that's really the biggest difference is the the type of angular loads that a headset sees and the bottom bracket doesn't see those kind of they see more of a radial load and that type of bearing um fixed and again not just the tolerance of the shell it's the diameter of the hole itself but that they're aligned with each other is super important and uh and so especially with the bigger spindles it's that type of bearing wouldn't wouldn't really help the system so much mm. okay. um 
but uh, and it would probably create other problems with a bearing not sitting quite right and yeah it, it really needs to sit on a on a radial type load where that where it's just spinning like a hub okay so let's move on to geometry this new bike is a little bit of a departure from the model it's replacing actually two models it's replacing in that it's following trends which is longer lower slacker yep and you said that when you were talking with some of your pro racers that you guys sponsor that everyone thinks they need a longer bike or a, a you know, a little bit bigger bike, but, or, or that they wanted to downsize. Uh, you said there's some, there's some weird things it, going there, on. With there, is some, there are some weird things going on. So, you know, there's, there's some, some very knowledgeable, but really vocal magazine editors globally <laughs> that generally are super tall dudes. And there's something that they want. They want super duper seat, seat angles because generally where we measure the seat angles, their saddle height is, 100 millimeters above that you know mm -hmm. and that puts them somewhere else over the back wheel and then because of their height they want long, longer chain stays for that size bike and then they want huge reach numbers so they have See, a I balanced just, bike i just push my saddle forward i like a little, slide it forward on the rear because i'm six too but I, I think i usually go with um crap i know it in inches i should know it in centimeters but like 31.75 inches from center bottom right to top of saddle along the basically the effective seat angle anyway because yeah. sometimes you get some weird bends in there and stuff but okay so yeah. yeah so one of the editors that was here for the camp from from germany that i do a lot of we've actually done a custom bike for him um and tested out a 78 degree seat angle uh, at his saddle height which is like in inches i think 35 to 36 oh my gosh so it's i didn't realize really, it was that tall it's really up there so what's uh, you say custom 78 degree what's the what's the seat angle on this new bike uh 74 okay so that's a big change to go to 78 degrees. yeah but even that is uh is an interesting one because there's no modern bike where the the in a in a suspension bike where the seat tube passes through the bottom bracket so if we measure the seat angle at a certain rider height then if a shorter rider has a lower saddle height and puts the seat post down then that's going to be physically a steeper seat angle and if right. they put it way up it's going to change it so if you take a a, a yardstick or a meter stick <laughs> and go from this center of the bottom bracket up to where the rider saddle actually sits and put an angle finder on that you're going to find some radical differences between claimed seat angles and what's really going on. But um, a steep seat angle definitely helps a rider climb, but you're seeing that trend just because it's popular to put it on uh, shorter travel bikes as well. So we've gone steeper than we have in the past and it's noticeable and there's a, a positive place for that. But um, if the bike is something other than something that you're just gonna pedal up to the top of the hill and then enduro down, you know, then, and it's something that you're wide, riding in a wide range of environments. If that seat angle is too, too steep, your knees are gonna hurt. Your top tube actually gets, because when that seat tube pushes forward, it effectively shortens your top tube. And there reaches a point also where the front end of the bike, if we keep pushing the reaches out to get in a, a proper effective top tube length, um, you just don't have enough weight over the front end and it pushes. And so it's been interesting on the um, uh, on the racer level because, well, like Eddie Masters has is having a, an 
the last season and, and coming into this season, um, incredible results in the EWS. And he was riding a Mach 6 and doing pretty well. We got him on a Firebird 29, which has among the, it's in the game for the longer reaches in the market. Um, and he didn't like it. He, he, he said it kind of, he felt kind of unruly and that he didn't have uh, full control over the bike, even in the real steep EWS stuff, and uh, was wanted to go back to his Mach 6. And, uh, and what's the difference in effective top tube between those two? It's not the effective top tube. The reach measurements are uh, large frame to large frame. I, I, I need to look up the exact geometry charts, but I think we're talking about 10 to 15 millimeters okay. longer so it's reach measurements. it's not huge, but it's definitely... It'd be like, you know, imagine changing your stem 10 or 15 yeah, millimeters. Yeah, it's, it's enough um, that it's, it's the balance difference between... Uh, being able to have enough weight on the front end and steep stuff and not. Um, and so he wound up, uh, I didn't want to give up on it. And I said, you know, I ride also a large in everything that we make. But when we did this bike and I rode a large, I felt the same thing. And I, so I stepped down to a medium and I'm super happy with medium. And uh, it actually, we were joking when we developed the, the new Firebird 29, um, the Firebird 27.5, I liked a medium that had pretty long reach measurements as well at South Mountain at home because we just don't have the super steep stuff and I like a bike to be playful and throw it around but then in Whistler I'd like a large so we jokingly called the prototypes of the Firebird 29 I'm a large <laughs> so and it and it and it hit that nice balance um, I'm just under six foot and there's a lot of people in that size range and so ultimately Eddie wound up going to the medium and his results um, went up dramatically. And we ha we've had a couple other riders, high-level riders, that the same thing has happened, where we either ran through the numbers with them right from the beginning, um, and we just had another racer that insisted on the large, and he's actually six foot one. Um, and uh, after riding it, um, uh, he lives in Squamish, and uh, and decided that he needed a medium frame as well. But on the customer side, we are selling an enormous amount of bigger sizes because they look at that reach measurement and they're like, I want to go bigger. I want the long, hmm. long reach. And uh, Do you think it's just because they, they, everybody's into enduro now and you know going downhill fast and stuff and they want to push that front wheel further out so they're a little more safe and stable on the descents? Like why? The, I mean, with the head angles and the reaches being as long as they are, they can run a 35 to 45 millimeter stem and be as safe as they're going to be. And anything beyond that um, is they j they just can't handle the bike in corners. So then they're and they're not guys that ride. Most people don't ride over the front of the bike like a pro rider. Right. So if a pro rider can't make the front stick and finds it that it's too much out there, then even average Joe pro, it's it's too much so the the trend side of it says yeah let's go longer 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 but the reality of of it is is there reaches a point where one you got to look at the trails that you're riding and two um who you are as a rider but even when the top pros just are like yeah 
we're not going that long and we've made all the seat tubes shorter and we've made all the head tubes shorter so you look at the range of bikes between a small and an extra large and the where there used to be huge variations in the seat tube lengths now they're stacked up really tight the downhill bike um is one length of head tube and one length of seat tube and comes in four different reach measurements hmm. and I, I you wouldn't be able to fit the average trail bike properly if you did that right but essentially i almost wish we could say yeah knock yourself out here's four <laughs> reaches and uh but same thing on the newer downhill bikes i used to ride a large i ride a medium now and uh so how do you reconcile that with um i guess across different models because so the one we're racing and we're riding now is more xc oriented and I'm 6'2 and on an extra large, and it's great. Like, I don't think I would drop down because yeah. I felt super comfortable riding around for the past three days on it. And um, in the past, I've ridden XLs from you guys across all the different models, really, from, you know, some of the longest travel other than the downhill bike, you know, through the mid-trail stuff into this. Then how do you – do you have to, like, almost fake the size stickers on bikes to – trick people into getting the right bike we, for them no we don't fake it at all it's you know there's five in four or five sizes and it's the the general small medium large extra large naming convention and said the customer wants those longer reaches in a bike like the firebird and um so we're that's that's what they go for um if they rode a large before they're going to want to buy a large now and uh um if I just sized them based off of what we're really seeing on the pro circuit, in my opinion of it, um, we probably wouldn't, uh, we would, the bike sales wouldn't be as popular, but that's mm. because that's what the, the, the customer wants. And, uh, um, and yeah, it'd be interesting with you at six two Cause I've got one guy in my office about your height. That's got a, a massive ape index <laughs> and, uh, um, he, because the seat angles are steeper and it shortens the top tube, um, he's kind of got to be on that extra large. Um, but he he says he had an extra large Mach Six. He's like he he's like yeah I can go like a freight train on this bike, but yeah it's just not as poppy and there's just a lot more bike out in front of me. Right. Bike still is light, pedals well, um, so for most people they can be overbiked. Um, but I still think if somebody's listening to this um and and values that type of information of uh um not just me talking about it but what we're really seeing with top level pros that those guys are not riding bikes that long unless they're like six three to six five guys and then and then they want all they can get but if you you ride an extra large in most all of our bikes and you could ride an extra large in a firebird 29 but I think if you then got back on a large in that particular bike, you'd go faster. Just be a little more playful. So yeah. do you think as the travel increases and the, the fork angle gets a little slacker, is that typically when you want to size down? Uh, yeah, I mean, you look at, uh, I, I don't have uh, all the me- reach measurements off of all of our bikes memorized at the moment, but uh, um, if you look on our website, you can generally see that something like a switchblade has a, maybe a 10 to 20 millimeter uh shorter reach than a um than a firebird 29 per size and um 
and that's the different and that's like a large to a, a medium and the um, firebirds how much travel uh 162 in the rear 170 in the front okay and so it's a it's it's the big bird 29 so you get to the downhill bike yeah yeah okay so how do you other than you know doing interviews like this like how do you communicate that to riders when are is there kind of an faq of this or do you just try and get people on a smaller bike when you're doing the demos well we do a lot of demos in the u.s and then in europe um the, they're just gaga for the long geometry and um and the bike's been it's our it's our best selling bike globally because the especially the european press they they really push that super super long geometry and that's what the customer wants and it's uh and we go over and which one is uh, this the, the firebird 29 okay um so they like the longer reaches but when we have the opportunity and they're at a test event and they get to try a couple of sizes um then they really see that hey even though i'm looking at this on paper i'm really more comfortable with what's going on on the one bike versus the other and there's so so many different ranges of body sizes and um i think it's gotten trickier too with because so much has changed over the last couple years with you know this whole longer and slacker thing it's like i used to know the ETT measurement effective top tube measurement for me and it kind of translated across all different kinds of bikes and now it's like you really gotta do some mental math to figure out if it's going to be the same from like a 160 bike to you know 100 or 120 bike because they're, they're just not the same and it makes it harder I think for people to find the right size bike when you're trying to get like you know maybe you want an enduro bike and you want an XC bike the, the numbers just you can't really compare apples to apples anymore at all yeah it's difficult we used to design all our bikes by top two lengths so when you looked at the um being being americans um <laughs> when you looked at the top two length measurements it would be like 22 and a half 23 and a half 24 and a half um and then whatever that translated into into the Man. Global metric system, but uh, it's better um, than the old C2 days when it was you know 16 half, 17 half, yeah. 18 half, and it told you nothing about how the bike would actually fit. Um, but now, nothing we do is driven. I personally, when I buy a bike, I want to see that effective top tube measurement because that combined with the seat angle with the reach measurement, I can get an idea what's going on. But, um, but it's not. When everybody was still hanging out at kind of average seat angles, it the the reach measurement became an incredibly effective tool to say, oh yeah, I, I I've got I like a three hundred and eighty millimeter reach or a four twenty or whatever the the number was that they preferred. I've actually we've got several editors that when we send bikes to they we have that fit sheet that we send out to you guys and they'll they'll fill out nothing and give me <laughs> a reach measurement at the bottom. And I'm like, Done. yeah, I like a 40, 35 to 45 millimeter stem. And I like this reach measurement, whatever bikes closest to that, right. send me that. Huh. And, uh, it's funny cause I usually do the same, but I just fill out the effective top tube, but that just doesn't work anymore. So I guess we should explain reach for anybody who doesn't know. It's if you draw a line vertically straight up from the bottom bracket to what point at the front of the bike? So, um, from the bottom bracket horizontally across, um, and then, a a vertical measurement to the top of the head tube okay so it's the kind of the 90 degrees of it takes the seat angle out of the equation so you just know literally the top of the head tube not the top of the stem or yeah anything right okay and so when you get variations in head tube 
Um, even, you know, some of the, I'll, we'll get questions on certain bikes, like the, uh, the switchblade went from a 150 millimeter fork in the past to a 160 millimeter fork this year with a, from a 51 offset to a 44 offset. And when that bike changes, all the reach measurements that we list change. Those aren't round, we never round those numbers. They are exactly as they are, but we, when we designed it around the 150, they were all 10 millimeter increments. And now the bike gets kicked up at a slightly different angle. Now it's, it measures slightly, right. slightly different. And so then people, <laughs> then people are like, Hey, you know, I thought the big addition was the DPX2 and the, and the longer travel fork with the offset. How come? The reach measurement is different from my bike from last year, and it's like the same bike. Reach measurement changes when you put a longer travel fork or when you put shorter travel fork on it. And the bike we've got coming out, people will be able to see that because there's the two forks that we're running in the spec um, listed on there, and, and you can see that there's slight differences in, in the reach measurement as well. Cool. Okay, we're coming up on presentation time for some other new bikes you guys are launching, so I want to wrap this up. I kind of throwing one thing at you um i feel like some people may love or hate bb386 and they have you to thank for that <laughs> and now there's one other one that people are either gonna love or hate which is super boost um what's the story on that where's the pros and cons and why'd you do it well if it's super it's got to be better right or, obviously Absolutely. <laughs> no uh when when Boost came out, the idea was really fantastic of um, moving the chain, the front chainring out, and the rear sprocket out a little bit, so that we had more space around the chainring for tire clearance, and that that worked well. There was obviously some controversy behind it; not everybody was down with it. Because oh, you got to buy all new stuff, right? Yeah, it it required the entire hub industry to retool with new hub shells honestly the the front hub was the perfect amount it uh it it increased the wheel stiffness and in, in a sizable way um and uh and it's a standard that was like okay we needed this this did everything checked all the boxes on what it needed to do um and then when you got to the back of the bike it moved the chainring three millimeters, and three millimeters is—it's something, but it's—but it's not a lot. At the same time that the boost thing was happening, um, plus wheels were coming into into fashion, and so we gained three millimeters, and now we're moving from a two three five tire to a two eight tire. And we should be clear about it's three millimeters per side. So you actually yeah, added six, six millimeters, millimeters of room for bigger tires. But the tough area to to clear is always around the chain ring where you have to make some tough decisions of um, one, do I hold the chain line that the manufacturer wants us to hold? Two, what is the biggest chain ring we can run on the front? Because it runs, the, the, there's the chain ring, there's the chain stay, and then there's your tire clearance, and then there's your tire. Um, you can either give up tire clearance, limit the size of tire that you can run on the bike, make your drive side chain stay incredibly thin or do weird things with it and set it and send it in strange directions um, or F with the chain line. And, uh, and that's not really a good thing either. Um, if you're going to screw with the chain line, it's usually better to push it in because people spend more time 
in their in their climbing gears, that's where they notice if if cross chaining is yeah. jacked. But to send it out in the other direction and have it cross chain more when they're grinding up the hill and they're fifty tooth, fifty one tooth. Oh, you can hear it and feel yeah, it. Yeah, and that's that's not fantastic. Um, so anyway, when I taught, yeah, there was six millimeters, but three millimeters of it is what mattered, and um, and so. It was still all of a sudden 3 0 tires came around, and the situation actually got worse instead of better because now we're going from 235 to 3 0, but we only gained three millimeters clearance. Tire grew more than three millimeters, and so now it's like trying to shove a 10 pound ham into a five pound bag, and it just <laughs> some, something's got to give. And uh, and we were we were uh, a couple other things that were going on at the time too, is the the switchblade had been. That's in our history. That's the bike we prototyped the most. We built the most versions of samples, and that bike got shelved several times because it just didn't meet. It was actually originally called the five twenty nine. And it didn't really meet any of the parameters that we wanted, or or some of the parameters in that. It just didn't ride like we wanted to pivot to ride. We either had to make the chains taste longer, even when boost came along. Um, carbon, not everybody had carbon wheels, and unless you ran a a, a really nice stiff car carbon envy rim, um, even with boost at the beginning there, with as your tires were getting bigger, you could feel the wheel wind up and stuff when you were doing mm. switchbacks and bowing um on a longer travel 29er and and then we still didn't have the space so we're dealing with the stiffness issue with the chain stays and um and so we started playing around with um with this whole super boost idea and it goes all the way back to our less fat and when we developed that bike um all the five-inch tire clearance bikes had 197 rear ends and the racing fat bikes that cleared four inches tires had 177 rear ends when in the marketplace we were finding that very few people wanted to buy a, a race bike but those were the cool bikes <laughs> but they wanted to put a five-inch tire in their bike and they didn't like five-inch tire bikes because they just had monstrous q factor right. and so our goal was can we do a crank set with somebody and at the time it was e13 that we used the q factor of the 177 rear end bikes um but put the chain ring where we needed to um to to line up with a, a 197 rear end and with boots and everything can we get the chain stay and heel clearance so we we worked on and i've got size 14 feet and i'm uh always a problem with bikes that don't clear have good heel clearance on chain stays so i'm i'm just kind of brutal on my engineering team about <laughs> that and how heel clearance is on the bikes um so when we did that bike we actually wound up moving the the chain ring out i think it was i don't remember if it wound up being seven and a half or nine millimeters but um i think we determined that we could move it over seven and a half millimeters and still have a front derailleur work hmm. without running the front derailleur into the crank arm and that you could go nine millimeters and still have the chain clear the crank arm and so i'd, I'd have to look Which back and see kind of yeah kind of important um so that's what we wound up doing 
so the idea of can we move the chain line over another three millimeters from boost and have give it six on each side um that that was a no-brainer and it just so happened with a race face crank that you could flip the the chain ring and get really close to the chain line that we were right. looking for obviously there's 157 hubs like crazy and yeah, because it's an old downhill standard. Because it's an old downhill standard. Maybe current still, right? Yeah. Yep. What did, okay. Um, yeah, it's it's the current downhill standard, um, and that worked. We liked it. We were able to get the chainstay sh short again. We were able to get the drive side chainstay thickness where we wanted it. We were able to get the heel clearance and the low Q factor. And at the time. Fat bike plus bikes had not settled on 2.8. There was a mythical 3.4 inch right. tire coming, and uh, it well, never even, and it, even 3.0s have kind of died. It's, yeah. it's that 2.628 is that sweet spot, I think. So, I mean, the switchblade's now on its most people don't know this, but it's on its third generation of swing arm because we reached a point where we didn't have to clear this 3.4 mythical tire. And on that bike, when it originally came out, it cleared uh, Q factor cranks, which were general trail bike cranks. So um, race face effect is at 177. I think a Shimano XT is at 176 or 174. And, uh, um, but the racing cranks were at 168 and that the bike did not clear 168 cranks. Mm. Well, it cleared them, but without boots, you put a boot on and that used up all the rest of the, the clearance. So the, you mean like the little rubber boots, the, the rubber boots the on the end of the crank arm. Yeah, okay. So a strong rider, um, on a XX one, crank at 168 q factor with the boots on the end could flex hmm. the crank arm into the to to rub on the chain stay when they were pulling hard on the bike and uh today the bike that rear triangle is even stiffer and it clears a 3-0 tire no problem but also clears every 168 q factor crank in the market so fast forward to today super boost plus is um it allowed us to build a better bike. It uh, we had Race Face on board from the beginning. We actually had Shimano on board from the beginning. Believe it or not, they they actually had prototypes of working Superboost Plus bikes um, way before anybody. And uh, but Shimano is a sometimes a very slow moving ship, and um, and you'll see in some upcoming Shimano stuff that Superboost has permeate, permeated their line. SRAM. Um, you know they're really behind the boost standard, and they weren't they weren't super stoked with the, even the naming of Super Boost, <laughs> and uh, but we got together with them, and now they're they uh, they support it fully. So they've got pretty much every crank in their line. There's Super Boost version of the crank, um, and uh, and then when they launched their latest generation of XO hub, that that went right to the Super Boost flange standard, which we haven't talked about that yet. But uh, 157 hubs in the marketplace existed, but they were really designed for 26-inch wheels. So the idea on a 26-inch wheel downhill um, wheel is that having even spoke tension um, was the most important. So usually that left side flange was moved way in. Hmm. And, uh, and so on a 26-inch wheel, you get really even spoke tension, a nice triangulated wheel. But when you stretch that out to a 29-inch wheel... Or even a 27.5 wheel, you wind up with a, a very narrow bracing angle and a, a, a not that stiff a wheel. And um, 
boost compared to a, a 142 rear end boost is 148. Um, that, uh, when we did testing with DT Swiss, that increased stiffness um, 12% over the 142 at, at, a, at the rim on a 29er rim, mm. uh, aluminum rim, 25 millimeters wide. Uh, super boost when we did the studies on how far we could go with the flanges still um, keep spoke tension more even than a 142 hub or a 135 uh, a 148 or a 142 hub and kick the spoke angle out as far as as far as we could go with that um, we wound up with a 30 percent increase in, in wheel stiffness huh. and so that that really a strong rider notices it immediately and not everybody needs to go up to an ultra stiff carbon rim and then the carbon rims that we can use can be lighter and um, maybe have a little bit more give to them and not be so brutal or easy to crack um, because you're you're back to a really good wheel strength wheel strengths that are more similar to what we were seeing in 26 inch wheels now at 29 and interestingly a boost front wheel is now about the same stiffness boost front wheel from the beginning as a super boost rear wheel hmm. so the boost front actually did gain about 30 percent in stiffness as well so you're just evening things so out. just evening things up yeah. so now there's a lot of companies that have adopted it and uh um more and more we've got uh salsa launched new bikes with super boost da vinci is moving to super boost across their line there's a bunch of smaller companies that have done it and it's it's here to stay and now that shimano is fully on board with it too and shram it's a it's not a new standard anymore it's just right. it's it's just ingrained and for the proper travel bikes where the that tire clearance is needed um it b builds a better bicycle awesome well man thank you so much for your time this Thanks. is awesome thank you so what did everybody think about that Leave your comments on the post on Bike Rumor for this episode. And uh, yeah, if you've got questions that he didn't answer or you want some elaboration, leave those in there too. We'll try and get him to answer some other time. Or maybe we'll find a new expert to answer other questions you have about any of those standards or anything else with mountain bike design. So if you like this, hit like and subscribe on whatever podcast player you're using to listen to this right now. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next time. That's a wrap on this episode. Tune in next time for another great ride. Be sure to follow at BikeRumor on your favorite social media and hit like and subscribe or leave a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks and we will see you next time.